Well, we will go ahead and get started. Let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature, and your church, gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments, may advance in the way of salvation and love. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, welcome to the first of ten classes in the program of Catholic Studies on the Ecumenical Councils. Um, they're all on Thursday evening, except for the last one, which will be on Saturday morning, December 5th. Uh, tonight we'll be looking at ecumenical councils in general, what they are and what their place is in the life of the church. The next week, we'll look at two of the first, Nicaea and Constantinople. The week after that, we'll look at Ephesus and Chalcedon. The week after that, third Constantinople and second Chalcedon. The week after that, fourth Lateran and second Leon. Then Trent, then Vatican I and Vatican II. Then on the 19th of November, we will look at one document from the Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church. And finally, on the 3rd of December, another document of Vatican II, Dei Verbum, the Word of God, the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And then finally, on Saturday the 5th of December, we'll have a lecture in Gallivan Hall on Vatican II, 50 years old. I had announced at the beginning uh, of our planning that that lecture would be given by Dr. Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things, a journal of religion and public life. Sadly, Rusty has had to back out. Two weeks ago, he sent me an email and said uh, that he had a herniated disc and he has to have back surgery at the end of November, and his doctor said, no traveling. So with regrets, uh, he will not be with us. Um, but the good news is the lecture will be given by a man of equal um, accomplishment, Dr. Robert Royal, who is president of the Faith and Reason Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. If you watch EWTN and the coverage of papal events, he's a regular commentator on EWTN. He also happens to be my godfather, the man who led me to the Catholic Church when I was a student in college. So for his sins, he gets to come to Greenville <laughs> and uh, give us a lecture on December 5th. <clears throat> the reason we're doing this series this fall is that December the 8th of this year is the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second Vatican Council. Vatican II met in the fall of four consecutive years. It began in October of 1962, when I was two months old. And then it met in the fall of 63, 64, and 65. Uh, it's fair to say that Vatican II is the most important event in the life of the Catholic Church since the Council of Trent in the 16th century. It reshaped the entire 
texture of Catholic faith and life all over the globe and is still doing it. And much of the turmoil that has characterized life in the church since the late 60s is a consequence of the church attempting to come to terms with the full effects of the teaching of the council. So, in observing the 50th anniversary of the end of Vatican II, Pope Francis decreed that the church would keep a jubilee year of mercy, which begins on December 8th, the 50th anniversary of the close of the council. So that's why we chose now to do this retrospective 50 years after Vatican II. But in order to understand the place of the Second Vatican Council in the life of the church, it's necessary first to understand what ecumenical councils are and how they have shaped our common life uh, for the last 1,700 years or so. Before we can do that, however, we must look into Holy Scripture and understand the mind of the Lord Jesus on how his gospel would be transmitted without addition or subtraction from generation to generation between his ascension and the last day. And so we read in John's gospel, chapter 16, verses 12 and 13. I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The setting for those words of the Savior is the Last Supper. He's instructing the twelve on the office they will hold in his church and how they are to fulfill the duty he's about to give them. Shortly after saying those words, they go out to the garden for his agony, followed by his crucifixion, followed by, of course, his resurrection. So this is the first text I want to look at. He's saying to the twelve, I have yet many things to say to you, meaning this is not the end. The... the act of teaching will go on even after this massive disruption of his passion and death. Remember that his most beloved title, rabbi, means teacher. He's teaching them so that they can teach in his name, with his voice, in fact with his own authority. And yet, between his word and their minds and hearts, there's a bridge, and he's pointing to the third person of the Trinity. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them. When the Spirit of truth comes, this is the third person of the Trinity now. This is not some nebulous um, good feeling that they'll have after the resurrection. This is a divine person continuing and completing the act of divine revelation. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. So there is uh, 
no way to understand the teaching authority of the church apart from the divine action of God himself in human history. The Lord Jesus, of course, is the incarnate word, the Father's eternal word, by whom all things were made. Uh, And when he became flesh, John says in the prologue to his gospel, we beheld his glory, glory as of the Father's only Son. So the, the act of divine revelation, which begins, of course, in the beginning and is slowly developed in Israel through the covenants with Abraham and Noah and Moses and David, is now finally and fully present in the new Israel, the church. And yet even the presence of the person of the incarnate word is insufficient And so, when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority. This is an interesting dimension of the Trinitarian revelation of God. Um, we, We don't want to become modalist heretics. That is, those who assign to one person of the Trinity a function or an office which is not enjoyed by all the persons of the Trinity. This is one of the dangers of the feminist critique of standard English. Father and son, they say, is patriarchal language. We need a different way to image God. And so one that doesn't refer to gender relationships is better. And so instead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier. Well, there are two problems, at least, with this. One... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the revealed name of God, and we dare not change it. But number two, it casts the persons of the Trinity into modes of revelation and action, roles unique to each person, suggesting that the whole Trinity is not involved in creating, redeeming, and sanctifying. So we don't want to be modalist heretics, and yet the role of the Spirit is like that of the Son, to do the will of the Father. The Spirit will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. The church looks back on these words of the Savior in the Last Supper and identifies them as a dominical promise, a promise of God that God the Holy Spirit, by moving in the minds and hearts, first of the twelve and of those who will take their place in the church, preserves the church from error and leads us into truth about the things that are revealed. And that's an important distinction. Leading us into truth doesn't happen in mathematics or biology or astrophysics but in the things that are revealed for our salvation, as we'll see in a minute. The next text that's of crucial importance to understanding what ecumenical councils are is this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the close of the age. This, of course, is the Great Commission. This is Matthew, the very end of his gospel, chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. The Lord Jesus is giving to the apostles, now not the twelve, but the eleven, their marching orders. There's one word common to both of these texts that sticks in the throats of modern people. Want to guess what it is? Authority. In the text from John at the Last Supper, the Spirit will not speak on His own authority. And now the Lord Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me by the Father. Argument from authority in the ancient and medieval world held great weight because it was understood to represent wisdom from experience and uh, the accumulating understanding not just of individual persons but of the whole human race. From the time of René Descartes and the turn to the subject and the rise of modern philosophy, argument from authority is despised as the enemy of a spirit of inquiry, seeking to understand uh, on the merits of evidence, not because of inherited wisdom. And in the right field, not relying on authority is essential to untrammeled inquiry, being able to ask a question and then accumulate evidence to test a hypothesis and verify or falsify it and to start over the scientific method. The problem is this. Modern people want to take the scientific method and make it the only authentic way of knowing of understanding. And it's that illegitimate exportation of the scientific method to other human enterprises that constitutes a real existential problem for modern people. There are some things that cannot be verified or falsified by empirical evidence. And the chief of them is this. I love you. How are you going to test that? And yet... How can you imagine a human life denuded of the things that can't be verified in the lab? How tragic would it be if we were not permitted to say I love you because it can't be quantified? In fact, the most important human things are of this kind. Things do, that do not admit of laboratory testing. More than that, there is wisdom from experience. Those of you who've raised children surely know this, right? But you also know that adolescent rebellion tests the limits of authority and of wisdom. Do it because I told you to do it. This becomes this conundrum of authority and independence and 
the illegitimate use of the scientific method in other parts of human life. This becomes a, a part of the drama for religious people, not just in the 20th century, but from the Enlightenment. Read the things said by the founding fathers of the United States about religion. It's startlingly modern. Adams and Jefferson speculating about intelligent life on other planets. Right? And rejecting the Catholic Church as an instrument of tyranny and oppression because of the claims the Church makes about its teaching authority. So there's no escaping dealing with the question of authority, and it's right here in these two central texts, which are an essential part of our understanding of what councils are. A third text. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. That's Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. The scene is also the Last Supper. It's Luke's account of a private exchange between the Lord Jesus and Peter just before they leave the upper room. And of course... Simon faces the test and fails it. In the very next verse after this one, he boasts, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll go to prison for you. I will die for you. And of course, before the sun rises and the cock crows, he denies three times even knowing him. But of course, his faith did not fail. Unlike Judas, who killed himself in despair, Peter turns again. He returns to the Lord. Simon, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me more than these? And this, like Peter's faith that allows him to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, does not come from inside of Peter. This is a gift of grace. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The faith that Jesus himself says in Matthew's gospel was given to him by the Father. And this is not for Peter's personal well-being. It's for ours. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. This is a classic text for explaining the role of the Bishop of Rome among all the bishops of the church. What Peter was to the apostles, the Pope, the Bishop of Rome is to the College of Bishops, the one who strengthens his brethren. So that's some of the background for understanding what happens next. Jesus has prepared the twelve and Peter to continue the office of teaching uh, guided by the Spirit for the sake of proclaiming the gospel. Another word to pay attention to in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Trinity, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. One of the Latin words for teacher, and there are several, is magister. And from that word, we get the abstract noun magisterium, the office of a teacher. The magisterium of the church is simply a way of describing the teaching office entrusted by Jesus to the apostles and transmitted by the apostles to their successors by the laying on of hands and the invocation of the Holy Spirit. The teaching office that the Lord Jesus gave to the twelve is given by the apostles to their successors. Therefore, those who teach in the church do so not from their own intelligence, their own education, their own wisdom, their own goodness. Meaning that a bishop can be stupid, ignorant, and malicious, and still fulfill his teaching office in the church by the action of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, it's better that our bishops be holy, learned, wise men. And we pray that that be so. But even when Rodrigo Borgia sat on the chair of St. Peter, this promise of the Lord was being fulfilled. So, now I want to read a long passage from chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles. And I ask you to bear with me because each of these verses comes to bear in what will follow about the nature of ecumenical councils. So this is the Acts of the Apostles beginning at verse 1 of chapter 15. Some who had come down from Judea were instructing the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the Mosaic practice, you cannot be saved. In other words, you have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian. Because there arose no little dissension and debate by Paul and Barnabas with them, it was decided that Paul, Barnabas, and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and presbyters about this question. The word that's translated presbyter here, presbuteroi, can also be translated as priest. My office is presbyter. So already in the church in Jerusalem, we have the apostles, the twelve, well, the eleven plus Matthias, who replaces Judas Iscariot, and these other men, elders, presbuteroi, priests, who are helping the apostles. They were sent on their journey, Paul and Barnabas and their helpers, and passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, telling of the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. They're in the north, and they're journeying south to go to Jerusalem, meeting Christians along the way, and telling them about the success of the Great Commission. People are coming to know the Lord. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, as well as by the apostles and the presbyters, and they reported what God had done with them. But some from the party of the Pharisees who had become believers stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Mosaic law. This is taking place around the year 52, meaning this is about 20 years after the resurrection. And from the teaching of Jesus himself, it was never clear exactly what the relationship would be between the church and the temple. Or to put it otherwise, between the church and Judaism. And remember, at this point, the temple is still standing. 
it would be nearly 20 more years before the Romans destroyed the temple. So the primary locus of Jewish faith and life is the sacrifice that takes place in the temple. And in addition to temple worship are the synagogues in all the towns and villages where a Jewish population large enough to provide a minion, at least 10 men who could gather to pray, there's a synagogue with with a scroll of the law. So here are Christians in Jerusalem who, like Paul, were Pharisees. And they're making the argument that these Gentile converts to Christianity have to be taught the law of Moses and circumcised. In other words, these Greeks or Gentiles must become Jews if they're going to be Christians. And because Jesus said nothing explicit about this question, it's a plausible argument at that time. The apostles and the presbyters met together to see about this matter. So, a conundrum is raised. A question of doctrine and morality of the faith of the church comes out of the lived experience of Christian people trying to follow the Lord. And confronted with this question, the apostles and presbyters have a meeting to discuss it. After much debate had taken place, Peter got up and said to them, So we have a group. We have a group arguing. You can picture it, right? Theological disputation from learned religious men is the best indoor sport there is. (laughs) And we can imagine that it was spirited. But it's to Peter that Jesus gives a singular office in the College of Apostles. And so Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you are well aware that from early days God made his choice among you, that through my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness by granting them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for by faith he purified their hearts. They meaning Gentile converts to Christianity. Why then are you now putting God to the test by placing on the shoulders of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear, fulfilling all the precepts of the law of Moses? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they The whole assembly fell silent, and they listened while Paul and Barnabas described the signs and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles through them. So that's the setting. The story goes on. After they had fallen silence, James responded, and this is probably James the Just, brother of the Lord, head of the church in Jerusalem, not one of the twelve, probably a cousin of the Lord Jesus, perhaps of Mary's sister, a son. In any event, James stands up and says, Listen to me. Simeon has described how God first concerned himself with acquiring from the Gentiles a people for his name. The words of the prophets agree with this, as is written, After this I shall return and rebuild the fallen hut of David, 
From its ruins I shall rebuild it and raise it up again, so that the rest of humanity may seek out the Lord, even all the Gentiles on whom my name is invoked. Thus says the Lord who accomplished these things, known from of old. This testifies to the place of the Hebrew Scriptures in the life of the Christian church. It is my judgment, it is still James speaking, that we, ought to stop tub- that we ought to stop troubling the Gentiles who turn to God, but tell them by letter to avoid pollution from idols, unlawful marriage, Supreme Court listening, <laughs> the meat of strangled animals, and blood. For Moses, for generations now, has had those who proclaim in every town as he has been read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So you see how the church and the synagogue, the church and the temple, Christianity and Judaism, are still essentially one entity. And now the Gentiles are being grafted on. The wild shoot is being grafted on. Then... The apostles and presbyters, in agreement with the whole church, decided to choose representatives and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. The ones chosen were Judas, who was called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers. This is the letter delivered by them. The apostles and the presbyters, your brothers, to the brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia of Gentile origin, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number who went out without any mandate from us have upset you with their teachings and disturbed your peace of mind, we have with one accord decided to choose representatives and to send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul who have dedicated their lives to the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we are sending Judas and Silas who will also convey this same message by word of mouth. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit And of us, not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities, namely to abstain from meat sacrifices to idols, from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right. Farewell. problem arises the church becomes aware of the problem the apostles and the priests deliberate under the guidance of the Holy Spirit a decision is reached and the decision is binding on all the church that basic pattern established there 20 years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus continues in the church until this moment. And that is the context for understanding ecumenical councils. By the way, that meeting in Jerusalem is often referred to by church historians as the Council of Jerusalem. But that meeting is not listed in the count of 21 councils which the Catholic Church recognizes as ecumenical because it's a singular event in the life of the church. Councils begin in the post-apostolic age after the apostles are all dead. Now, of course, 
the church emerged into the world speaking Latin and Greek, as well as Hebrew. And from that tradition, we have two words, even in English, which reflect the idea that there's going to be a deliberative assembly for the teaching of the gospel. From Latin, we have concilium, which gives us the English word council. And in Greek, we have the word synodos, which gives us the English word synod, S-Y-N-O-D. Initially, these two words are interchangeable, like liberty and freedom. There might be a slight difference of emphasis or shades of meaning, but effectively they meant the same thing. Council, concilium, and synod, synodos, simply referred to a deliberative assembly of bishops who would gather to discuss a common problem and find a solution. And in the first centuries after the church was dispersed from Jerusalem, these gatherings of bishops were local. So the bishops of one province, one metropolitan area. And then they might get several metropolitan areas together for a regional meeting. A, a, a good example. One of the first problems confronted in the church was a man offers himself to a bishop to be a priest, and the bishop says, no, you're not suitable. So the guy goes to the next diocese and offers himself to another bishop. And the bishop says, yeah, come on in. I'll lay hands on you. And then the guy, after a little while, says, you know what, I really like it better at home. I'm going to go back. And the bishop who said, no, you're not suitable, sees the guy and says, wait a minute, what happened here? So bishops had to discuss these things with each other. You may not ordain a man who's not your subject. Or, let's say that you live in North Africa and you're going to go on business to um, Syria or Italy, which was very common. We, we think of life in that time as, as somehow uh, primitive, like the Stone Age. It was not. If you were a merchant in Alexandria, you might be selling things made in Britain or in Arabia or India, which came overland or on ships. People traveled widely, particularly wherever the Pax Romana made it safe to travel. So let's say that you're a Christian in, in North Africa and you're traveling, and when you get to your destination, you want to be able to go to Mass and receive the Eucharist. But no priest may give communion to someone he doesn't know is a Christian in full communion with the church. So you have to have a letter of communion. Your pastor will write a letter certifying that you are in full communion with the church and a member of his flock, and you take that with you, and when you reach your destination, you can say to the local priest, see, and you can go to Mass and receive communion. That's the origin of what we still do when anybody asks to be a sponsor in baptism or confirmation. The pastor of their home parish has to sign a letter to the pastor of the parish where the sacrament will be administered, saying, yes, this person is really a member of my flock. You'd be surprised how often we have to say no. Somebody who hasn't 
past our threshold in decades. Oh, my, my sister's child is going to be baptized. Well, isn't that nice? But you can't be the sponsor in baptism. These are examples of pastoral problems that could not be solved by one bishop alone. These things were worked out by bishops in common. So from local and then regional and then supra-regional gatherings of bishops, we're gradually reaching the moment when the church throughout the, the then known world could be confronted by a problem that needed a, a solution for everybody, not just a local or a regional solution. And the problem in question was hatched by a priest in Alexandria named Arius. And I'm not going to steal TJ's thunder and reveal what comes next, but Arius was a heretic. But it wasn't known that he was a heretic yet because nobody had asked the question he was asking. And, and the response of the church to the challenge of Arius led in the year 325 to a gathering of bishops in a little town just outside of Constantinople called Nicaea. And the gathering of bishops at Nicaea gave us the creed, which would be later modified at the Council of Constantinople. But the church responded just like what we read in the Acts of the Apostles. There's a doctrinal problem, in this case about the Lord Jesus and his divinity and humanity. And the bishops of the church gathered together and explicitly invoked the example of chapter 15 of the Acts and agreed after a vigorous debate, including a famous fist fight that involved Santa Claus, St. Nicholas of Myra, uh, and, and agreed to a solution that bound the entire church to such an extent that every Sunday we recite the words they gave us as a definitive expression of the church's faith. Now at the time they gathered in 325 in Nicaea, which was really the summer house of the emperor, the bishops did not then know that they were doing a new thing. This was just another synod, another gathering of bishops. This had been going on already for more than 200 years. It only emerges later that there's something unique about a universal gathering of bishops that sets it apart from a local gathering. And that's why the word ecumenical council is now a signifier. Ecumenical comes from the Greek word oikumene, which simply means the world. So it's a world council, meaning the whole Christian world. Um, and from that time, these universal world gatherings of bishops have been understood both in the Catholic Church and in the Orthodox Church to be the fullest expression of the teaching office or magisterium entrusted by the Lord Jesus to the apostles and their successors. Now, 
I started by talking about Vatican II. Now we've come to Nicaea. Between the First Council of Nicaea in 325 and the Second Vatican Council in the mid-1960s, there are 19 others. It's a total of 21. So the First Council of Nicaea in 325, followed by the First Council of Constantinople in 381, followed by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Ephesus, by the way, among other things, is the council that decreed that we must call Mary the mother of God or we do violence to the truth of divinity and humanity in the Lord Jesus. So because of, its, because of the role of Ephesus in Marian doctrine, when the old rectory still stood next to the church, that was the only place where visiting clergy could use the bathroom. The sacristy didn't have a bathroom. And on the side door of the rectory, there was a combination lock. So when a visiting priest would say, is there a restroom? I'd say, sure, right through that door. The combination is the Council of Ephesus. And if the priest knew 431, he could get in. <laughs> and if not, well, you can pucker up, buttercup. <laughs> then came the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Now notice the gaps. 325... 381, 431, 451. It's only 20 years between Ephesus and Chalcedon. Then second Constantinople is 553. Third Constantinople, 680 and 81. 130 years. Second Nicaea, 787. 787. Isn't that Boeing's designation for the Dreamliner? Then fourth Constantinople, 869 and 70. Then there's a big gap. First Lateran Council, 1123. Second Lateran Council, 1139. This is, this is the, probably the first time in history we get sequels by numbers, you know. So we're, we're at Rocky 9 or Rocky 10. Well, we've got First Lateran Council, Second Lateran Council, Third Lateran Council, Fourth Lateran Council, a biggie. The year 1215 is the year of the Magna Carta, among other things. First Lyon, 1245. Second Lyon, 1274. Vienne, 1311. Constance, 1414. Basel, Ferrara, Florence. It moved around and moved around. Fifth Lateran Council, Trent, Vatican I, and Vatican II. Between Trent and Vatican I, Trent ended in 1563. Vatican I was not till 1869. So the gaps between these councils are vastly irregular. Notice the first seven between 1st Nicaea and 2nd Nicaea, which ended in 787, and then 4th Constantinople, which doesn't count for a couple of reasons, are all in the east. They're all in modern Turkey. They're basically suburbs of Constantinople or other prominent eastern cities. Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon. They're all in the east. Why? Because the emperor's in the east. The emperor's in the east. Rome had ceased to be the western capital even before the end of the western empire. The capital moved to Ravenna on the Adriatic coast. And then Rome was sacked and the Western Empire ended, depending on how you date things, 
476, or the death of Odoacer or Theodoric the Great. But the, the authority to govern the empire peters out in the, in the West, and the, the, the only Roman emperor now is in Constantinople. Imagine that you're the patriarch of Constantinople today, and there is no Constantinople. The patriarch of Istanbul. These first councils, though, are in the east, and that's important because First Lateran, the Lateran Basilica, meaning the Pope's Cathedral, is in 1123. What happens between Second Nicaea and First Lateran? The east and the west. So, the first seven councils are those that are accepted by all Christians everywhere. It's after the break with the East that the councils move to Rome or to the West in any event. And the Eastern bishops, the Orthodox bishops, do not recognize the councils after the schism. Um, we, of course, disagree. The spirit was not withdrawn from the church just because the Eastern bishops went into schism. Um, but it's an important point because when he was still Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict often said that in any contemplation of the restoration of full communion between the Orthodox bishops and the Catholic Church, nothing that happened in the church since the schism should be required of them. Meaning, things that have happened in our common life, which occurred after the schism, don't bind them. They accept the first seven councils. And that should be sufficient as the, as the basis for the restoration of unity. And that's Ratzinger. So, an ecumenical council, that is a worldwide gathering of bishops, is understood in the Catholic Church to be an exercise of the teaching office of the Church entrusted by the Lord Jesus, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, so that the gospel may be transmitted without addition or subtraction. But notice, not without development. The entire purpose of these meetings is precisely to develop the faith, not in a way that alters it, but in a way that exposes to our understanding ever more completely the truth revealed by the Lord Jesus, just like the Council of Jerusalem. Jesus did not address this question directly, but it's essential that the church know the answer. Does a Greek have to be circumcised and taught the law of Moses to be a Christian? No, but Jesus didn't teach that during his earthly ministry. The apostles did. And so we see the, the teaching office of the church being exercised in these gatherings. If you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church under uh, Council, you'll see a, a very precise definition of the authority of an ecumenical council. And the word that is invoked there in the Catechism and in, and in Lumen Gentium, the, the decree of Vatican II on the church, the word infallible comes up. And we need to pause there for a moment and talk about infallibility. Infallibility is not indefectibility. And infallibility is not impeccability. 
Indefectible means can't make a mistake. Impeccable means can't commit a sin. Infallibility does not mean that you're incapable of making a mistake or that you can't sin. It's a very narrow concept. And the idea, as it's developed over the centuries and expressed fully in Vatican II, is this. The gift of infallibility is given to the entire church. The gift of infallibility is given to the entire church so that the whole Christian people cannot err in their reception of the gospel. I know that sounds vague, and and it is. It's deliberately vague. Over the centuries, there have been efforts to refine it. One of the classic examples was offered by uh, a man known to history as St. Vincent of Loran, 8th century. It's called the Vincentian Canon in theology. It's a rule to measure the authenticity of uh, Christian teaching. We know that the gospel is the gospel when a teaching has been believed always and everywhere by all. It's an attempt to express this idea that the whole church will not err when it receives a doctrine as true. So the reason the Council of Nicaea had to meet in the first place is that vast numbers of people said to Ederius, you're a heretic, sit down and shut up. The people did not receive his doctrine. And that's what brought it to the attention of the bishops. Just like Paul and Barnabas came to Jerusalem because the fight had already broken out. The question only came to the apostles after a good portion of the church rejected a teaching. And so the gift of infallibility is the guarantee of the action of the Spirit working in all believers in such a way, think of it as the church's um, um, immune system. Like a virus comes to the body or bacterium and the body senses it and attacks it. Well, heresy comes into the church and the antibodies in the gift of faith in some portion of the church, attack it. No, that's not true. So the gift of infallibility is given, first of all, to the whole church. The question is, how is it exercised? Acts 15 tells us, in deliberative assemblies of the apostles and and their co-workers, in imitation of the apostles in Jerusalem. So the whole church has brought a crisis to the attention of those in authority to teach who go apart and argue among themselves and pray for guidance and come to a decision and with the assurance of the Holy Spirit announce that decision in a way that binds the whole church. So, the gift of infallibility goes first to the whole church. On behalf of the church, it's exercised by those who exercise the teaching office. And among those who exercise the teaching office, one has a unique role, the Pope. So when people talk about papal infallibility outside the context of the gift of the whole church exercised by the successors of the apostles, 
it's impossible to understand what we mean by papal infallibility. And if you read the New York Times sneering at this idea, you come to the conclusion that we think the Pope is personally incapable of sinning or making a mistake. Impeccability, indefectibility. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Popes make mistakes all the time. Popes sin, sometimes gravely, scandalously. We've been blessed for a hundred years with saintly popes. We've forgotten what it's like to have a wretch in the apostolic palace. But it happens. The gift of infallibility is simply the guarantee that the whole church will not err in accepting something as true when someone claims that it's revealed by God. An ecumenical council exercises this gift of infallibility guided by the Holy Spirit who leads us to all truth so that we can know with moral certitude when something is true and when something is false. Now what is that something? Over 20 centuries, our theologians have identified four levels of teaching authority and a corresponding responsibility of the faithful to respond to that teaching. The first and the highest are revealed truths and solemn definitions and dogmas. These must be believed with divine and Catholic faith. De fide credenda. Failure to believe these things makes one a heretic and outside the communion of the church. An example would be the Lord Jesus was conceived with no human father. And that he is the second person of the Trinity made man, and that he did rise from the dead and ascend to the glory of his Father. These are revealed truths, and the church transmits them with the highest level of authority, calling forth from us divine and Catholic faith, the absence of which endangers our salvation. The second of the four are definitive truths of the faith, which must be accepted de fida tenenda, that is, definitively held by us, even though the church doesn't claim these were revealed by God. These are known to the magisterium of the church because of their connection to the essential truths that are revealed. And the denial of these secondary truths endangers the church's faith in one of the things revealed by God. Examples? Women cannot be priests. Euthanasia is immoral. The ordination of Anglican deacon, priests, and bishops is null and void. These things are not revealed by God. But they, our knowledge of the truth of these teachings is connected to things revealed by God about the sacramental economy of salvation, about the natural moral law, and so forth, in such a way that we must hold to these definitive truths of the faith definitively. And a failure to do so, while not rising to the level of heresy, places one outside of full communion with the church. So a Catholic who says, not only can women be priests, they should be priests, and the church is committing an injustice by not ordaining them, has, by the fact of thinking that, placed himself or herself outside of communion with the Catholic church. Even though it's not heresy. That's the second level. 
The third level of teaching in this scheme of four is ordinary authoritative teaching. This must be received with religious assent of intellect and will. A good example here is the social teaching of the church or the teaching on bioethics. Both of these examples of Christian doctrine are bound up with constantly changing and probably temporary human arrangements. These things are not revealed by God. It is not necessary for them to be definitively held. Having doubts about them does not place one outside of full communion with the church precisely because of the complexity of applying revealed truths to human circumstances that are changing and changeable. For example, the teaching on labor unions that begins with Leo XIII could not have existed until labor unions came into being. The, the gospel does not include a political or economic textbook on how to organize human affairs. The church can live and has lived with political and economic arrangements of a bewildering variety of forms. And yet, when the bishops deliberate and teach in union with the successor of Peter, even about these matters that, are, that do not pertain directly to divine revelation, we are called upon to receive them with religious assent of intellect and will because of their connection to the things that must be believed with faith or must be definitively held. And finally, the fourth level, prudential interventions. This is when an individual bishop or a group of bishops or even the Bishop of Rome looks at a human situation and attempts to apply it wisely and prudently according to what he knows by faith But the prudential intervention is something that other people could look at and come to a different conclusion. So the Bishop of Rome stood in the well of the House of Representatives last week and said, we believe that it is time to end the death penalty. That's a prudential intervention. It is not necessary for Catholics to agree with him. And even those who disagree do not endanger their communion with the church by virtue of that disagreement. So several years ago, the Bishop of Charleston, not the present one, but his predecessor, called for the removal of the Confederate flag from public display in Columbia. And the week after that, he just happened to be at St. Mary's, and I stood with my elbow on the mantelpiece of the rectory where all the flags of the Confederacy are displayed in a little, a little decorative. And I said, now, which, which of these is it that you want me to take down? And he laughed. He, he understood. That's an example of a prudential intervention. And these we must receive with respect because it's a successor of the apostles who teaches, presumably a man who is learned and wise and good. And, and so we receive the teaching with respect, even if we come to a 
conclusion that differs. These four levels, revealed truths, definitive truths, ordinary authoritative teaching, and prudential interventions. You see how complicated this gets when you begin to pull it apart to understand it. An ecumenical council concentrates normally on the first two, revealed truths and truths that must be held definitively, de fide credenda and de fide tenenda. But ecumenical councils also normally include canons, laws of the church that apply teachings and which should be obeyed. Vatican II was maybe the only council, I'll have to check this, maybe the only council in the history of the church that did not include, in addition to its teaching documents, a list of legislation to enact the teaching. That came later. Primarily, John Paul II, who reformed the codes of canon law for the Eastern and Western churches and promulgated the catechism. But previous canons of churches have listed things like when all the bishops are together uh, in a meeting, who gets to the back of the line? Who's the highest? Right? It's like the apostles traveling from Caesarea Philippi back to Galilee, quarreling among themselves about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Well, who's closest to the emperor? The one closest to the emperor gets to stand in the back. You know, you can almost see Curly and Larry. (laughs) So the canons of the councils have talked about ecclesiastical precedents. And if you think this stuff doesn't matter to the Eastern bishops, just watch when Constantinople and Moscow get into a hissy fit. It's a spectacle. It can talk about the discipline of the sacraments. Who has authority to baptize? Who has authority to confirm? Who has authority to ordain? How do you reconcile a Christian who's been baptized and then apostatizes and then wants to come back? So councils sometimes teach at the highest level of truths de fide credenda and de fide tenenda, and sometimes they include disciplinary norms. And knowing the difference is not an exact science. So as you'll see when we get to the end of this series, the Second Vatican Council issued 16 documents, one of which is about social communications. Well, it's nice that the church noticed that the modern world communicates in a way different than we did in the 4th century. But that intervention was very dated within days of being published. And yet, another document of the same council on the church herself and on divine revelation, these things endure forever. So you have to know what kind of teaching is it and what authority does it have in order to understand how we respond to it. Yes, Bob. So, Father, four levels, dogma, Right. Prudential intervention obviously came to the mind. The other two, at what point can we expect to be If I could answer that question, I'd be the Pope. <laughs> For those of you who didn't hear, the question was with these four uh, levels of teaching, 
starting with dogmas which never change and ending with prudential interventions which do, with the two in the middle, when does a teaching become immutable? How long does it have to be believed before it moves from being ordinary authoritative teaching up a notch to definitive truths of faith? When the Code of Canon Law was promulgated in 1983, it included canons that describe two of these four levels, the revealed truths and the ordinary authentic teaching. It left out the one in between, the definitive truths that must be held de fide tenenda. It was an oversight. The Code of Canon Law also requires that anyone who holds an office that allows him to teach in the name of the church must make a profession of faith and an oath of fidelity. But the profession of faith was not included in the Code of Canon Law. It had to come later, and it was drafted by Cardinal Ratzinger, promulgated by John Paul. In that text, there were three levels of teaching, not two. The prudential interventions are never mentioned in the oath precisely because you can disagree and it doesn't blot your copybook. Uh, so the code lists, lists two, uh, the profession of faith lists three. What do we do about this? Well, uh, the Pope added a canon to the code after the profession of faith was written, after the code was promulgated, so that it's lined up three and three. Dogmas de fide credenda, authoritative teachings de fide tenenda, and ordinary teaching. How do they move up? Well, part of this is answered by John Henry Newman, who develops a theory on the development of doctrine and lists nine tests by which we can distinguish true developments of the faith from deformations. And precisely because some of these things arise in history Centuries after the death of the last apostle, it takes time. For example, how does, the, how does the church know what to do with nuclear weapons until there are nuclear weapons? There was abortion 2,000 years ago. We have more efficient ways of doing it today, but there was abortion 2,000 years ago. So there's Christian teaching on abortion from the beginning and we were against it, in case you had any doubt. There was contraception in the beginning, and we were against it, if you had any doubt. The progesterone pill adds a new wrinkle because it's a new technology, but the idea is as old as humanity, and the church was against it. But there are things like in vitro fertilization. How in the world would the church ever have thought of that until it was technologically possible. And now we've mapped the human genome. Designer babies can't be far, right? Buy a new Motorola smartphone today and you get to go online and decide what color you want the case to be. Do you want it plastic or leather? Is the accent trim going to complement or contrast? Do you want 16 or 32 gigs? And you do all of that and boom, the phone is in the mail on its way to you, right? Well, Imagine sitting down with your significant other and saying, blonde, brunette, or red? Green eyes, blue eyes, or brown eyes? 
It's a boy. Do we want him to be 6 or 6'2 or 6'4? Do we want him to be an athlete or a professor? You see what I'm saying? This sounds like science fiction, but so did in vitro fertilization when John XXIII was elected Pope. And by the time Paul VI died, it was science fact. The church will grapple with these developments. And that's, by the way, why bioethics is usually listed under the third category of ordinary authoritative teaching. Because the pace of technical innovation is so rapid and accelerating, the church is always behind the curve. So the teaching on in vitro fertilization doesn't come out till the late 1980s, 10 years after it's commonplace in most medical centers. Um, but, right, but in, 20, in, in, in the 23rd century, you know, when, imagine, we talk about the early church, meaning from the resurrection till the fall of Rome or even a little later, uh, and then the medieval church, and then the Renaissance. So we, we, we categorize history in these segments. Imagine if in 10,000 years the Lord has not returned, and they look back at us and think that we're the early church. Right? At some point in the future, these things that are now prudential matters or uncertain perhaps will solidify. And it will be the action of the same Holy Spirit that was at work in Jerusalem and at Nicaea and at every council up until now. And in the interval, we live with ambiguity. And by the way, that ambiguity often provokes the most uh, fruitful theological investigation. A professional theologian, someone who has spent his or her life studying texts, learning languages, learning the scriptures, learning the tradition, mastering the schools of thought, Augustine and Aquinas and all the masters of the theological tradition. A professional theologian is not one who teaches like a bishop, right? I said at the beginning, bishops do not teach with authority because they're smart or learned or wise. They teach with authority because they're ordained. They have received the grace of their state and life. Theologians do teach with authority only because they're smart and learned and wise. And the theological chair, that the chair of the professor and the chair of the bishop, when things are working well in the church, reinforce each other. The, the scientific investigation of the theologian deepens the church's understanding of new things like these technologies and eventually allows the church to come to a consensus and for the bishops to teach in a way that illuminates some truth of the gospel more clearly for the whole church. So sometimes that process is messy. The theologian who is assisting the whole church to understand something more deeply, may be on the cutting edge, may get a little out in front of the rest, and then sparks fly, right? And sometimes they end up so devoted to their own view that they won't accept correction from the church, and they have to be sent off sad, like Arius. Or in the United States in the late 1980s, a priest named Charles Curran, who taught moral theology at, of all places, the Catholic University of America. 
and who led the public rejection of Humani Vitae in 1968. He organized theologians to sign the rejection and publish it in the newspaper before he'd even read the text. It took 20 years to drop the dime on him. It happened while I was at Catholic University studying philosophy, and he's been teaching ever since at Southern Methodist University. He was not laicized. He was not dismissed from the priesthood, but he was deprived of the ability to teach in the name of the church because he was teaching falsehoods and, and disputing the faith of the church. That's the extreme. Sometimes that happens. More commonly, a theologian will get all uh, ginned up over uh, a new discovery or, or an original thought, and the bishops have to push back. And if the theologian is wise and humble, he'll say, okay, I'll listen. Thomas Aquinas was condemned by the Bishop of Paris in 1277. Turned out Aquinas was right and the Bishop was wrong, but it took a little while to figure that out. Right? Henri de Lubac was silenced by the Holy Office in the 1950s. A Jesuit theologian who had crucial insights into mid-20th century theological development, was told he could, he could not publish or lecture. This is a man who spent his life studying to publish and lecture, and he's told, sit down and shut up. And you know what? He did. And less than 10 years later, he was called to Rome to be an expert at the council. And his ideas were vindicated and he made an original contribution to the life of the church. It's messy sometimes while intellectuals and bishops try to sort out where these teachings are and how we understand them and what role they're going to have in the life of the church. Are there any other questions tonight? Yes, ma'am. Yes, thank you. Uh, the question was, at the beginning, I, made a dis I observed that the words council and synod were used interchangeably. Now they are not. In the Western tradition, that is in the Latin church, the word synod came to be used to describe lesser councils, diocesan or metropolitan regional gatherings. Um, sometimes they're still used interchangeably. For example, the new code of canon law says that every diocesan bishop can have a synod in his own diocese. It's a, it's a gathering of the lay faithful and the deacons and priests to talk about where do we want the diocese to go? What are our problems? What solutions can we find? We had a synod in the Diocese of Charleston in the early 90s, 92, 93. Um, in the 19th century, all the bishops of the United States met in Baltimore three times for what were called plenary councils, full councils of the bishops of the country to debate questions confronting the Catholic Church in the United States. So the circumstances in Charleston and Minneapolis are vastly different, and yet both are in the United States, and these bishops need to take common uh, deliberation to shape the life of the church. The three plenary councils of Baltimore 
um, shaped the, the life of the church in the United States for more than 100 years. But they were not ecumenical councils. They had no um, authority to teach revealed truths or uh, the second category. Mostly it was pragmatic stuff. For example, it was the third plenary council of Baltimore that said, insofar as is possible, every Catholic church in America should have a school. Um, And... uh, because Protestants get so inflamed at the sight of a priest in a cassock, priests shouldn't wear their cassocks on the street. They should wear it only at the parish and then change into a black suit when they go off the property. Because there were riots in New York. Churches were burned in Philadelphia. No popery. Right? And so it was a prudential decision. Let's not provoke people. Lots of priests who are younger than I am are saying, yeah, let's provoke people. I'm going to put on my cassock and go to Walmart, right? I mean, the circumstances that pertained at the Third Plenary Council of Baltimore are now reversed. Nobody bats an eye if the imam goes to Walmart swathed in whatever imams wear. So, <laughs> uh, the Senate of Bishops is uh, a new creation after Vatican II. It was decided that periodically representative bishops from each country would gather in Rome at a lesser level than the council. So it's not an instrument of teaching. It's a way of allowing the bishops to get together and talk about common problems. So starting Sunday in Rome, the Synod of Bishops is meeting. It's It's not a council. It doesn't have teaching authority but it is an expression of the teaching office of the church under the headship of the Bishop of Rome. Any other questions? Let us pray. God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit, he promised us, to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken in them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life in baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for coming and good night. <laughs>